0: This Women's Agenda podcast series, The Leadership Lessons, is supported by Salesforce. Wendy McCarthy has been fighting on the front lines for women's advancement and gender equality for decades. An influential business leader, advocate, and founding member of the Women's Electoral Lobby, Wendy has had a long, determined, and wide-ranging career in everything from business and political advisory to education. Her daughter, Sophie, has also had a broad-ranging career spanning research, family planning and mentoring. She has taken on the same commitment to further gender equity and today she is the CEO of McCarthy Mentoring. Her commitments include being the chair of the Sydney Community Foundation and advisor to the Sydney Women's Fund. I'm Shirley Chowdhury, the host of the Women's Agenda podcast, The Leadership Lessons, which is made possible thanks to the support of Salesforce. In this week's conversation, I'm joined by the formidable mother-daughter combination of Wendy McCarthy and Sophie McCarthy. Both women are fierce advocates for women's rights in Australia and are passionate about mentoring other women and the fight for improvements to women's reproductive rights. In this first interview that they are doing together, they share insights from their careers and why they are so focused on improving the lives of women in Australia. So I'd like to start today by acknowledging that we meet on land that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. And on behalf of all of us, I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging and thank them for their ongoing custodianship of this beautiful country that we have the privilege of living in. Wendy McCarthy and Sophie McCarthy, welcome. Thank you for joining me today. So I'd like to jump right in and talk about Wendy to you first. Your career has been incredibly diverse and I'm not going to list all the things you've done because I think that would take the whole hour. But you've done everything from teaching to advising governments to being on boards, CEO, director, chair. Was your career serendipitous, opportunistic? Was it planned? Oh, probably all three. To begin
1: with, I never thought I'd have a career. I thought I'd have a job. And there's a very big difference between a career and a job. And to encourage people to think about careers, young women particularly, is quite a challenge or was quite a challenge at my time because I just couldn't believe my luck that I was a university graduate, four years at university, first in family to go to university, and I had a guaranteed job for five years as a secondary school teacher. I never thought that it would be other than a job. And it was a professional job. And I loved it from the minute I walked into the classroom. But I never thought of a career. And I remember once at Cremorne Girls High School in my first teaching appointment, one of the women in the staff room said, you know, you're really coming along as a very good teacher. You might end up being a school principal. And I thought of every school principal I'd ever met. She was single, no children, and had to retire. Women teachers had to retire at 50 and 55 during my teaching thing. And I thought oh my God, I don't want to be like that. I want to be married to someone. I want to have children. I want to do all sorts of other things. And that's when I realised that there was a sort of binary thing. It's a very important thing for people to remember. We had jobs and we mostly married out of our bond. I had a five-year teaching bond and I did not have to repay my bond, whereas all the men did. And I thought that was fabulous. But of course, when I got a bit older and smarter, I realised the men kept just moving on in the seniority system. They didn't have a broken career. They kept earning money. So what is the Department of Education thinking? It's thinking the trajectory of professional women's lives will be a little job for three years, teaching, marriage and children, move them into the system, more jobs. But for men, they're already preparing them for careers. And I didn't understand that for a very long time. And I counselled young women really carefully. Now, you may change careers. I have seven times. But if you want to have a career, you have to stay the course. And the serendipity that might appear in some places is not really serendipitous. It's actually quite a disadvantage to a career. My perfect career would have been a linear incremental trajectory ending up in my dream cupboard, which is to have been a principal of a girls' school. But it didn't go there. So I became opportunistic and... I also became a feminist activist and determined to change the system and I became opportunistic.
0: Wendy, we'll come back to how the world has changed since then, if at all. But so if you've had children and your career is also really interesting, you started as a researcher and then went into government and now you're running your own company. You've done a bunch of things in between. You're on boards, you're a chair. Have you had to be opportunistic as well? Because I don't. Listening to Wendy speak, I don't think the world has changed as much as perhaps it should have, or Wendy would have hoped back then. What are your thoughts as you went through? It's interesting. I
2: mean, I think, yes, I think to survive and do all the things you want, you do need to be opportunistic. And I think I definitely have. I did always assume I'd have a career, but that's probably because I had the mother I had who, you know, possible and was a role model and I knew a lot of her peer group, but I hit a few walls and I just sort of went around it or jumped over it. I think one of my reflections now as someone who's 53 is that I didn't stick around long enough to sort of wait it out and perhaps I just didn't trust that there was going to be a great pathway ahead of me. So, I mean, the first career I had as a researcher, I did love a lot of things about it, but I was too noisy And I was too chatty (laughs) and I just ultimately thought if I'm going to be stuck in this room for the next 10 years, I'm going to die. So even though I found it intellectually really interesting, the work, it wasn't enough. I wanted to do sort of more. And I think I was also one of those people that very young, like even when I was at uni or straight out of uni, I just wanted to do about five things, so I just did them all at the same time, which is probably not a great idea. So, you know, I was working as a researcher. I was doing a counselling course because I thought I might still want to be a counsellor. I was working for a not-for-profit sort of voluntarily. Uh, You know, I was having a life as well.
0: Do you think that's though because I went to a girls' school for high school and the message that we got as we were leaving Year 12 was women can do everything. You can have it all and you can have it all at once. And I remember about five or eight years into my career and family and everything else thinking they lied. Like, we can't do it all at once. We can't, you can't have a career and kids and husband and friends and family who loves you and a career that's incredible. You can't do it all at once. And yeah. so, do you think that's why you went out of the gates like that? I
2: think possibly. I'm not sure I really articulated that at the time, but I do remember when I was about 27, a lot of my girlfriends, we all sort of looked around at each other and we're all in different careers looking at our mothers and our boyfriends and things at the time and suddenly we all went, oh, my God, we're going to be 30 in three years. and like our mothers all had children at this time and look who we're going out with oh my god we've got to make changes in our lives quickly you know so there's a real urgency and I see that so much now with young women that we work with and it starts way earlier like programs we do with women still at uni they are already saying you know well I could do this job it'd be great because when I have children and I think no you know you might not have children you might not want to or like don't Create your whole career around something you might do in 10 years' time. So I do think that's part of my personality, just jumping in and trying lots of things. Yes, you should be opportunistic always. And having a a long-term plan, like if you want to be a scientist or if you want to be a lawyer or if you want to be an engineer then you do need a plan as to how you're going to do that. But as we all know, it's a very long working life now and you might do those things for 15, even 20 years. And Shirley, you know, as you know, a lot of the people that we mentor who are my age, they're looking for what they do next. So it's always useful to have some different experiences. So, yes, I'm definitely a supporter of people making plans, but I don't necessarily agree you need to do it for 10 years.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, Wendy, do you think we've gone from one extreme to the other? Young women planning too much now or trying to plan too much?
1: No, I don't think so. I think it's always a good idea to think about where you might be a couple of years ahead. I think it's about dreaming and imagining and and thinking about where you might be. And as I said, you know, as a principal of a girls' school, I always had this thing, well, not always, but after I'd been teaching, I grew to love teaching young women. I just adored them. I adored their dreams. I adored their frailties and so on. And it was also probably in a way the beginning of my mentoring career because I had girls in troubled circumstances, girls in extraordinarily wealthy circumstances in the US when I was teaching there. And I felt by then that one thing for me would be some time to be a school principal and I applied for jobs as a school principal twice and on my, on my way to an interview once so I got a phone call from the person said, look, we've decided you're not actually a practising Christian, not that they'd asked me, um, and you can't come to the interview. And I thought, okay, that's going into the dream car but that's the end of that story. I'm going to move my face around and do something else. So I, like Sophie, am a risk taker. And except in matters of sex and contraception. But it's important to be able to manage risk and to think about how you can manage risk. So if you leave the Department of Education, it's very hard to get back in. And by then you've seen options and you start to work on those options. So I became a community educator. I didn't even know what one was, but I went there and suddenly I'm educating, you know, schools and nurses and doctors and so on about contraception and family planning for a girl who didn't do biology. It was quite remarkable. But I managed for other reasons to be, I somehow developed this skill of communication and advocacy and mostly I learned that marching in the streets with women and the women's movement. There's something about caring about something enough to make you brave and take a risk. And I've been like that since then and that was really the late 60s, the middle and late 60s that I started to do that. I watched them in London and then I got onto the streets in Washington and in here. So I had a plan that I would always be in my consciousness, I would always stand up for the rights of women and the rights of children. And some of those things were part of my early life which I never really came to terms with until I started to do that. Like I had an abortion. But I never disclosed that to any doctor I went to or anyone else, you know, did, um, my husband and I, that was the, we did together. But I think that that stayed with me. And, you know, there I am 50 years later in the pro cho- chairing the pro-choice movement to take abortion off the criminal code. So do I plan? Yes, I plan for that to happen. But it just took 50 years.
0: That gives me great hope because, Sophie, I'm your age, and so that means we have another career or two or three ahead of us. Yes, definitely. (laughs) Yeah, no, exactly, exactly. Now, Wendy, I need to go back and uh, just touch on something you said because otherwise the listeners will be thinking, why didn't she ask that question? So when you were telling us about that, you said you take risks with everything other than contraceptives and sex. So you've spent a lot of time working on female reproductive rights. You took out a one-page ad in a paper. You were one of 80 women years ago to say that you had an illegal abortion. Why has that been such an important part of what you've been doing? And then, Sophie, I want to talk to you about the benefits that you and I and people of our generation have gotten from that work that Wendy and her comrades did back then in doing things like that, you know, being real risk takers and, and taking those steps.
1: Well, do you know, I think it was partly calling their bluff. For years we believed what men told us and, I, you know, it's not a rant about men really but the prevailing thinking was that, you know, inherited from people who were in power was was a male structure whether you want to call it a patriarchy or it's a loaded word or whatever. The existing power structure was male-controlled. And what kept happening for women like me was we invaded parts of it and it didn't turn out to be that much anyway. When my first board of directors, I thought, well, no, I'll go back further. When I went to university, I thought I was going into Oxbridge and I was in a little cottage in Armadale, going into a beautiful main building, but they weren't all gods. They had feet of clay and that's okay. I do too. But I didn't understand that and then as I moved into more and more of those structures, like being a board director, they weren't gods and the secrets they supposedly held, they weren't that clever anyway. You know, we were all pretty much the same. So when we took the ad out, it was to say we've all been silenced by a rule that says a woman and her doctor have a criminal event if the woman has an abortion, and therefore they can both have 10 years' jail. And we sat around and thought, this is ridiculous. So those of us who'd had abortions decided to put our names in the paper and dare the police to charge us. Not one of us was charged. And after that, we were never frightened. Often people who join clubs and band together and they have a common interest and they don't want outsiders in, they miss out on a rich experience of diversity and the conversations and thinking that comes with that. But most of all, you actually call their bluff. You know, they all have feet of clay and they all blow over in the wind and learning to argue on a Based platform is very frequently difficult for them. And I think that once you discover that, you become more confident about joining it. The least confident I was probably in my corporate career was joining a board of financial services. We know that's not my strength, but actually, neither is it my weakness. And I still can ask questions about who's handing out the advice, why I'm the only woman on the board that was a class litigator, and uh, why, why we don't support other class litigators, particularly the not for profit ones. And Turns out it wasn't that hard to change their minds. But you can't change your mind if you don't have a seat at the table.
0: Which is what we need. So, Sophie, any thoughts on that? You and I are in that next generation coming up after Wendy and we're still having those questions, aren't we? We just had a vote in a private club recently to continue to ban women. We still have women who are the first women in boardrooms and the first women in senior management. We're still facing those issues.
2: Yeah, I think we are. Coming back to the reproductive rights aspect, I mean, I think... Being a young adult in the eighties, all of my friends would have taken all those reproductive rights for granted, that they could get the morning after pill, they could access contraception on their own from the age of you know, 16 with a doctor, they could have a termination of pregnancy. In fact, most of my twenties was spent you know, in lobby groups looking at reproductive rights for women in other countries where they didn't actually have those freedoms. So it's quite jarring a decade later to then when Tony Abbott was the health minister to in your lifetime to see if those things, some of those things reversed. So when John Howard became prime minister, a lot of that overseas aid that went to family planning projects and I worked for an overseas aid agency then that was all reversed like Bush did when he got into the US. So a lot of those programs that were supporting, you know, women in some of the poorest countries in the world, those programs were terminated and the funding for that. And we do know that when you support women and their children in those communities, that they're the communities that thrive and those people are able to go to school and get jobs. But yes, in the last 10 years, I mean, abortion has always been controversial it's definitely more accessible now. But that is also if you live in a city. Like I had holiday jobs and uni jobs at various family planning clinics as I'd been introduced to by mum from a very early age when she worked in an education role in in New South Wales. So when I was at ANU and then when I lived in Darwin many years later and in my research job, I I worked as a receptionist in those places. And I remember being in Darwin and there were women that came in and you still had to get the authority of two independent doctors to go ahead with a termination in a public hospital. Of course, as often happens, if you have the money, you have more choices. But I don't think many of us argue that it should still be a right for women to be able to access those services because there's no form of contraception that's ever foolproof and women should have the right over their bodies.
1: Can I just come in there, Shirley and Sophie, and say, the reason we talk about this all the time is that health and education are the foundations for a community. We're seeing that in the pandemic now. Education is the one gift you get that no one can take away from you. Once you get it, it's yours. The World Bank says that contraception is the best educator in the world and has said consistently. Most democratic societies, and ours in particular, opinion polls have never moved from between 77 and 85 of a community, our community, being in support of a woman's right to consult her doctor and to be in charge of the decision about making a termination. So, our reproductive health is a very important part of us being
0: the begetters
1: of the next generation.
0: About being independent, isn't it? About being independent and in charge of your life.
2: That's right. Mm.
0: I'm reading Melinda Gates' book at the moment. It's fantastic, but she tells the story of a woman in Africa who learnt about contraception and asked why she hadn't learned about it earlier, because it changed her whole life. Like 10 years on, she had started working and she had been able to concentrate her efforts on her kids that she already had. And the Gates Foundation says it's the one thing that can change the economy in third world countries. So it's a really, really important thing. Over the last five years or so, we've seen the rise of, of right wing politics and conservative politics all around the world. And there has been, Sophie, you said earlier, you know, we generally don't dispute the right of a woman to govern her own reproductive rights. But actually in the past five years that's been under huge attack. And somebody said to me, actually four years ago, they said, I fear that a lot of the gains we've made in women's rights, human rights, will start to be reversed and we've seen some of those rights be eroded. It's frightening that that's the case what does that mean for the next five years or the next 10 years, the fact that those rights are being, the rights that you worked so hard for are being eroded, the rights that Sophie and I took for granted?
1: Uh, I think in Australia, it'll be very hard to return and to lose those rights because the new law is much simpler and it puts abortion just in, as a matter of women's health. So it's not as easily picked at. We have much better abortion laws in Victoria, Queensland and New South Wales than we've ever, ever could have hoped for now. And South Australia probably will be there any minute. I think that, you know, the rise of the anti vaxxer, the rise of the anti pill taker, it's mostly about to be able to demonstrate the risks and you know to get a risk profile on if i don't take the pill and i have an unplanned pregnancy or i don't take a long acting contraceptive and something fails what will the impact of that be when we were all hot to trot on this we had a constant flow of public health education and it's like you know it's like a quit program in smoking as soon as you stop talking about smoking the rates go up and your only controls really are public health campaigns and big taxes. And that's the reasons we've we've got rid of smoking. So you can see the issues around the pandemic. People don't realise in today's world that public education programs are really, really important for a community to work cohesively and move on to the next stage. And looking at those demonstrations at the weekend made you realise how many people are fearful and that lines up in an aggressive way because they don't want to be like us. They want to be seen to be independent. They want to be outliers. And many of the stories about the contraceptive pill were like that for the
0: first 10 years. So let's move to something more positive. Sophie, your business is all about mentoring and supporting men and women into career transitions through their career. What makes a good mentor and what makes a good mentee? Do you even need to consider that when you're matching people up?
2: Definitely, definitely. What makes a good mentor? In short, someone that listens well and someone that can support and who's interested in, you know, developing other people. That's a given. But I think what's probably particular to our organisation is that we definitely look for people who've been in senior roles who have experienced the joys and sorrows of having leadership positions and we all know that can be an incredible privilege and opportunity but can also come with a lot of responsibility and and often loneliness and that's why people seek out mentors in the first place to find that safe space have that independent perspective and to have yeah wise counsel in a really confidential way. And I think for mentees, that can be anyone. Um, and Mum always had a nice saying that you know people at all through their lives should have you should be a mentee and a mentor all the time. you know you should always be learning, you should always be giving back. So for mentees, it's really we just want you to take ownership of it. We want you to be open to feedback. We want you to drive the process. We want people to take that time to think more deeply about their careers, what they're good at, you know, what their strengths are, what their gaps are, what are the areas they might have to do some work on. And then also just reflect on what motivates you, what what gives you energy, what gets you up in the morning.
0: And Sophie, I've been the beneficiary of your mentoring program and obviously loved it but some of the best mentors I've had in my career have been the people, just women and men, who I've met along the way and I've developed informal relationships with. Wendy, what's your advice to women out there who might be listening, or men, whose company won't pay for a formal program like McCarthy Mentoring? They can't perhaps afford it themselves. How do they go about getting somebody in their lives to have that sort of really productive relationship with from a career perspective?
1: Well, in the first instance, learn to ask. There are many people who are just thrilled to get a call from someone saying, look, you know, I really really like everything you say. Could you just have a cup of coffee with me and just help me think through a couple of things? Because sometimes 30 minutes can change someone's attitude to life. Just the idea that you could be able to sort of listen to your own voice while you outline something to a new person and introduce yourself can give you a moment of going, oh, I think I can take charge of that. And I've never been formally mentored, but I've certainly been mentored by men and women in that order through life. You know, men who said, you know, you can do more than you think you can. That's a really exciting thing for someone to say to you. And I think that, I mean, the one that, when Sophie talks about the ones who've been on the program for a long time, well, I, and they were mostly women, but I I know men who've had the same mentor for probably 20 years. And I just think to myself, why wouldn't you get someone else? Because that person's just like an <laughs> old-fashioned relationship. They finish each other's sentences. But if it's comforting, but back again for the person without those resources, I also think that, you know, I I think still, Sophie, I haven't done it for a long while, but I think people can still get a tax deduction for education and often those people don't have a tax problem, but just assuming that, you know, that's a, that's a benefit and... Just keep asking people. I know some people who have, you know, met up to 20 people like that.
2: Can I just come back to that thing you were saying too about asking people? Because often in big organisations where they have big in-house programs and there's hundreds of people, there's always a couple of people in the organisation that everyone wants them. And sometimes they become extremely <laughs> overwhelmed by the interest to in them. And I do remember a woman a few years ago who said, I've just got my three things that I ask them. I just ask them to, you know, think about what they want, why, why they want to work with me, what are their goals for the year.
1: And you need to touch base with that, you know, probably every decade, every job you do, am I doing the right job? Do I want another one? And these are confidential discussions. So confidentiality makes the discourse more important and more valued because it's actually for you.
0: And I think, Sophie, what you said earlier about, actually concentrating on why that person's the right person. That matching is really important because not everybody will enjoy a conversation with me. And so it's making sure that that fit is really is really good.
2: Yeah, and there's a lot of people that just, it's on your top five things now that most people look at and they say, how am I going to progress my career? You know, get a mentor, work on your networks, think about what you want to do. You know, do you have a career plan? And so I think there's, they need to do a little bit of prep To make that a more meaningful
0: exchange. It takes a long time. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, the benefit of a mentor for me also has been that they see something in me that I haven't seen in myself. So I haven't been able to recognise something in myself. And then a mentor tells you, and it's different to your husband telling you, because all of a sudden it means something. There are a few more things that I just want to touch on. Wendy, have we gone far enough? When you started your career and you posted that one page ad and you lobbied for women's reproductive rights. Did you think we'd be further along now than we are?
1: Oh, the balance sheet, of course, is positive. You know, if you look at it, first of all, we're really good at educating women in this country. We're right up the top of the OECD, although we have fallen a bit in the last couple of years, but we're still very good at women's education. And we've had, you know, Sophie and I had this conversation yesterday, when you feel depressed, you need to think of the first of type, first of class, first of species, the first governor general, the first prime minister, the first women premiers, the first women in um, science, in defense, in all the major public areas, the first women millionaires and billionaires. These were not women in my imagination or life experience, even reading everything until I was about 40. And although we've won equal pay in court three times, we, do, we still have a big gender pay gap. That is a real problem. We do have more women on board. It's not enough. 50-50 is the perfect number in everything we do. And there's a little bit of overlay because we're 51% of the population, but we can give the blokes that 1% and just let them have it. Let's go for 50-50 everywhere. So there's no doubt that we have come a long way and we have come a long way in terms of women-owned enterprises. I could never have imagined that I would have my own business and probably Sophie couldn't either. So I think we should never underplay our achievements. And, okay, you can't have everything at once, but you can have most things. What you need to make sure is all the rest of your species are getting the same thing and it's worth fighting for. And the trouble is we become complacent, we take it for granted and then someone who feels an outlier will probably try to take it away from you and that's when you have to sit down with your values and say, am I going to defend this? That's when you have to take action. And I'm hoping that there will be, after all the dramas in our parliament at the moment, I mean, the one thing that we have really not done well is protect women from domestic violence. That is our big challenge at the moment it's a challenge throughout the world we are suffering from terrible behavior in our in parliament if it's happening there and it's happening in our homes and one woman a week is dying from being killed by a partner we have a a lot of work still to do but we must acknowledge the amazing work we've done to have the lives we have today
2: definitely i mean i think we do need to celebrate all those wins and all those successes of the many women over the last 20 30 years or in the last 10 even, who have reached the highest level of leadership and done those jobs really successfully in in very challenging circumstances. When we look at, you know, Julia Gillard and people in the defence forces, people in banks, insurance companies over the last couple of years, you know, in various royal commissions and things, the women that have, you could argue, have, you know, taken the hit for a lot of other you know, decades of, of poor behaviour. But I also think the work that we still need to do is, yeah, actually paying people equally for jobs that they do. Secondly, childcare, it is still grossly expensive in this country. And I think it's very high quality, but it is very expensive for people.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And I think, on I don't know if you've seen the ad where A little boy and a little girl are both asked to perform the same task and at the end of the task the person who's asked them to do it gives them each a bag of lollies but the boy gets a big bag of lollies and the girl gets 70% less and the boy turns around and says, well, why did she get less? And it makes no, even to children, it makes no sense. You know, and it's such a simple concept, as you say, as you say, but we're not articulating it properly. We're not addressing it properly. So, looking forward to the next ten years, what do you think, Sophie? Does are those things the areas that you think we need to focus on to shift the dial in terms of gender equity?
2: I do. I mean, I'm, we're definitely seeing, and it's probably been actually really nudged along by a lot of people now working from home because of COVID shutdowns and lockdowns and you know men and women in their own households need to participate more equally and they're only going to do that when you know they feel able to at work um you know take time off share those responsibilities more evenly and when it doesn't make sense for one person to actually stop working to pay for childcare i've got 3 kids and i also wanted to help raise them you know i didn't want them to go to childcare All the time from the minute they were born. But, you know, that was also my choice. So yes, I do think that having more affordable childcare is incredibly important, having workplaces that are inclusive, and I hope that we could embrace technology to do some of this more efficiently.
1: Um, I certainly want to see equal pay, and equal pay is something, as Sophie suggested, a lot of people use a lot of weasel words about, and we've had endless inquiries into how to achieve equal pay. It actually isn't that hard. So equal pay is important. I feel very, very strongly about women's health and safety, and that's that includes domestic safety and you know a public health system. Measures at risk about the drugs that women use and take in their lives. I mean, reproductive lives are long, and if you want to protect a society, you have to make sure that you know that only the right drugs are available during those times when we might need them. So, health and safety, and that includes all the domestic violence issues and and rape. And I suppose I'm, my last thing it is: I want truth to power in Parliament. I'm overslazy people in three areas of government. You know, I want honour and respect restored to a parliament.
2: Could I, can I just add to that too, that yes, one of the perhaps obvious things is that in all our institutions and organisations, why aren't we still aiming for 50-50? In so many places, we're very congratulatory of ourselves when we have 20% women um, in organisations. And I understand when you're trying to change an organisation that, only has 10 or 15% women, it's really challenging. It's not straightforward. But we do need to see more women in leadership roles. And I don't mean that they're all the CEOs, but that they are in roles of influence and authority. And in government, we need to see... People who are decent and respectful and brave, compassionate and brave.
1: And I just want like one last little thing, which is not a little thing at all, it's a very big thing. And that is, it is unacceptable to have Aboriginal Australians still without a voice in Parliament in the way of the Charter that they've written, which is the most exquisite document. We have a very long way to go, and that could happen very quickly. You know, we don't need to have all those mealy mouth words about, oh, you know, what if they get too much control? I mean, So I want to see more and more Aboriginal people as leaders and they certainly are in their own communities and they should be across all of our communities.
0: I think the other thing that we haven't touched on today but is a whole other conversation too is that we're not great at recognising leadership in all its different guises. As you said earlier, Wendy, we still have this stereotype of the white male leader and that permeates so much of our thinking. So people who don't look like that, you know, the with the cultural diversity we've got in this country—not just Indigenous Australians, but people who've come here from other countries, migrated, second-generation migrants—we need to support leadership in all those guises to make sure that the upper echelons of each of our corporates and our organisations and our government actually reflect who we are and what we actually look like. Leadership's an opportunity
1: for everybody. It can, be the, it can be the smallest gesture. It can be someone who runs a little, sets up a little athletics club because they can see a need for exercise and opportunity for kids in the community. I mean, every little leadership action grows a bigger action if it's managed well. And, you know, the, really the biggest definition of leadership is you've got followers.
0: Wendy and Sophie, thank you so much. I feel like we could keep talking about the problems of the world for hours. Um, Wendy, on behalf of everybody listening, thank you for everything that you've done, because without women like you fighting for women like us, we wouldn't be in the position we are today. That's very,
1: very sweet of you. Thank you.
0: This week's discussion went everywhere, and we could have kept talking for hours. Wendy McCarthy has been a pioneer for women's rights in Australia and it's been a pleasure to hear why this work has been so important to two generations of McCarthy women. It's no wonder that growing up in a household with Wendy, that Sophie fights for the same issues. Raised in a home where female strength and autonomy was celebrated in Wendy's work, it's no wonder that this has been the case. The Leadership Lessons podcast is produced by the very talented Alison Ho. You can contact us via Women's Agenda or me, Shirley Chowdhury, anywhere on social media. Women's Agenda comes out every weekday and you can read it and subscribe at womensagenda.com.au. Have a great week. If you are in lockdown, stay safe and we look forward to hearing from you soon. Women's Agenda is proud to partner with Salesforce on this podcast series. As the
2: world's leading CRM, Salesforce continues to be a different kind of Fortune 500 company, one that cares and gives back to the community, yet innovates like a startup. Equality is a core value at Salesforce and as a business, believes that its higher purpose is to drive
1: equality for all. For more, visit salesforce.com.